I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, September 30th, 2014. Coming up, Kia Chatterjee of the World Wildlife Fund discusses the organization's latest Living Planet report. Lots of bad news on the biodiversity front, but also some bright spots, such as how cities like Boulder and Denver are taking the lead on sustainability. with a look at some of the recent news in science, starting with a report about the link between climate change and extreme weather events. Atmospheric scientists at NOAA here in Boulder say that climate change is actually not to blame for the historic rainfall that caused massive flooding across the Front Range a year ago. The main symptoms of climate change are increased greenhouse gases, warmer ocean temperatures, and decreased sea ice. Those factors cause a knock-on effects that disrupt climate patterns around the world. But models indicate that they have not made it more likely for Colorado to have heavy, long-lasting rainstorms. Researchers say climate change will cause heavier rains in some parts of the world, but may actually make such events less likely in Colorado in the future. So last year's storm was just a freak accident of the weather, a collection of short-term conditions that has little to do with long-term trends in Colorado's climate. Mars said hello to two new spacecraft this week, NASA's MAVEN, which arrived on Sunday the 21st, and India's Mars orbiter Mangalyan, which arrived Wednesday the 24th. MAVEN stands for Mars Atmosphere and Volatile Evolution. The spacecraft will spend the next year flying around Mars on an eccentric orbit, which will let it dip deep into the Martian atmosphere. NASA is hoping to find clues about the history of Mars' climate and whether the planet ever did or ever could support life. The Mangalyan Orbiter is the first interplanetary mission for the Indian Space Research Organization and makes it the fourth space agency to reach the Red Planet. For India, it's a milestone achievement that demonstrates the capability to send missions far beyond Earth orbit. Mangalyan carries five scientific instruments to analyze the Martian atmosphere and make observations of the surface. Prosthetic limbs can restore important functionality to people who have lost an arm or a leg. Not so for paraplegics, however. They have limbs that just don't work, usually because of an injury or congenital disease that prevents nerve signals from traveling down the spinal cord. Scientists with a European project called NEU Walk at the Federal Polytechnic School in Lausanne, Switzerland, are working on a prosthetic that paraplegics can use. Instead of replacing a limb, it replaces damaged nerves in the spine. The system uses electrical signals to bridge the gap in a damaged spinal cord and control legs in real time. The scientists studied rats whose spinal cords were completely severed in the middle back, so signals from the brain were unable to reach the lower spinal cord. That's where flexible electrodes were surgically implanted. Sending electric current through the electrodes stimulated the spinal cord to activate the leg muscles. By analyzing movement in normal animals, they determined that the amount of leg movement correlated with the frequency of the electric signals. In other words, longer and higher steps can be produced by altering signal strength and speed. The system used in the rat study will be tested in human patients with incomplete spinal cord injury in a clinical study that may start next summer. 
Once the patient's own body movements have been used to program the electric signals to the spinal cord, the signaling device should generate and control leg movements. The research was published last week in the journal Science Translational Medicine. In the beginning, space was without form and void, and darkness moved upon the face of the waters. Then there was light. No, I'm not quoting the book of Genesis. Research published last week in the journal Science says that in space, water really does come before light. According to the scientists, much of the water in our solar system is older than the sun. It's a surprising find because most of the chemical processes necessary for life depend on the sun, but not, it turns out, the early formation of water. The researchers looked at the history of water ice in the solar system by examining the ratio of hydrogen to its isotope heavy hydrogen, or deuterium, which has an extra neutron. Using this information, the scientists deduced that some of the water on Earth and elsewhere in the solar system existed before the sun was formed. If the conditions that preceded the formation of our solar system were typical, then water might be a common ingredient for all planetary systems. That would mean all young planetary systems might have water ice in them along with prebiotic organic matter. In other words, the ingredients to support life might be widespread throughout the universe, which is good news for those hoping to find signs of life on one of the nearly 2,000 exoplanets orbiting distant stars that have been discovered so far. And yes, we can see water out there some places. More on that later in the show. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. A new science-based analysis of our human impact on the planet was just released today by the environmental organization World Wildlife Fund. It's called the Living Planet Report. Needless to say, it doesn't paint a rosy picture overall. The researchers show that, for instance, wildlife populations across the globe are roughly half the size they were 40 years ago. And although rich countries show a 10% increase in biodiversity, lower-income countries are suffering a drop of nearly 60%. WWF's latest report, which comes out every other year, ranked the ecological footprints of 152 nations, and it warned that the world is living beyond its means. But there are bright spots in the report, too. Even in the absence of national legislation and international treaties, some cities in the U.S. and elsewhere are making progress toward sustainability and greenhouse gas reductions. With us on the phone from Washington, D.C. is Kea Chatterjee. She directs the Renewable Energy and Footprint Outreach Programs at World Wildlife Fund. Kea, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks so much for having me, Susan. So this was a very broad-brushed report covering just about everything (laughs) environmentally. Maybe you could give us a snapshot of the report's findings, starting with this ranking of the nation's ecological footprints. Is it a, a ranking the U.S. should be proud of or not? Probably not. Uh, The U.S. has improved very slightly, but that's only very slightly. So if you look at the current rate of consumption globally, uh, on average, it would actually take one and a half Earths to meet the demands of humanity. So in other words, because of how much we humans are consuming, we are, uh, we are overdrawing on our natural capital. So we're cutting down trees faster than they can regrow. We're taking fish from the ocean faster than they can be replenished. We're burning fossil fuels at a greater rate than the oceans and the trees can take that CO2 out of the atmosphere. And if you look at the U.S. in particular and how we rank, if everyone on the planet lived like we 
we do here in the U.S. on average, it would take almost four Earths in order to support the demands of humanity. And despite and, you know, all of our research this. on Mars and elsewhere, it doesn't look like we're getting elsewhere anytime soon. We've got the one Earth. Exactly. Yeah. There, there might be water on, on, on uh, some of the, <laughs> these exoplanets out there, but they're too far away to help us. Yeah, and that would be sort of dumping our garbage elsewhere anyway, most likely. And how, well, so almost four Earths based on our current lifestyle here in the U.S. How how does this compare these findings with World Wildlife Fund's previous report? So we've actually seen an even more dramatic uh, increase in the loss of of, spe- of species abundance in this report. Part of that is because we simply have more data. Um, we have 15% more data than we had before. And part of it is because we were able to better balance the data we have in tropical and temperate species. Um, because in, in Western countries, you know, we, we've already, um, you know, experienced dramatic declines in species, we're at the point where we're actually exporting biodiversity loss to other countries by our consumption. So an Wait, could you dissect that, that a bit? Yeah, what do you mean by exporting yeah. biodiversity loss? So, you know, for example, in the United States, we throw away between a third and a half of the food that we purchase. And that means that, uh, that more food is being grown largely in other countries in order for us to have it, and then we throw it away. So if you imagine, you know, forests being cut down um, in Asia in order to grow palm oil, which goes into our food, and then we're throwing that food away. So our consumption is actually exporting the biodiversity loss in Asia of forest elephants, and we're seeing that happen, and it's largely because we're buying these products, many times which are the result of illegal uh, deforestation, sometimes are the result of legal deforestation. But largely from our profligate waste, sounds like. Yeah, and I think that that's one of the most important finds. You know, so, so in the report, we actually we look at three major areas. One we've talked about, which is these, these populations of more than 10,000 vertebrate species. The second is the human ecological footprint, and that's what measures the consumption of goods and the greenhouse gas pollution that we produce, um, which has a huge effect on those wildlife species. And then the third is the biocapacity, the, the amount of natural resources that the earth can produce for producing food and freshwater and sequestering carbon. And when you look at all three of those trends, what you see is that we, we actually, in, in many countries, are using far, far more than in lower-income countries. So high-income countries use five times the ecological resources of low-income countries. And yet, there's a real justice issue here because low-income countries are suffering the most from these ecosystem losses. Right, and can't be too facile to say you should clean up your mess and be more like us when, as you say, we're doing five times more. Yeah, and, I, and you know, I think one of the things that uh, it's important to keep in mind with, with uh, reports like this, I, I think it, it's tragic, and I think people are, are saddened when they hear that we're losing the, the number of, of animals that we're losing, but I think that people even are not as shocked as they should be, and part of that is because I think we've become desensitized to violence mm. against wildlife to violence against our planet. And so 
what we want to use this report to do is really encourage people to engage in a different way um, and to, to engage politically and to think about and ask their, their elected representatives, what do you think about the food waste crisis? What do you think about the water crisis? What do you think about the climate crisis? And vote accordingly because there's so many ways to make better choices and, and turn this around. There's nothing inevitable about the trends in this report. And in fact, they can't be inevitable because unless we turn this around, there can't be life on earth without these ecosystem services that, that the natural world provides us as human beings. And as we saw from a couple Sundays ago, I mean, you, you were at the climate march in New York City. There certainly is some grassroots momentum that seems to be building. Absolutely. We were anticipating having about 100,000 people out in the streets of New York City in advance of the UN Climate Summit, and 400,000 people came out. And what that shows me is that there is this untapped desire on the part of the American public to engage on these issues, to demand more of our politicians, to say to our politicians, we're paying attention, we care. Um, you know, the, there were so many people in the streets that, you know, that, that uh, it took us about two hours from World Wildlife Fund where our members were gathered. It took us two hours just to get to the start of the march. Wow. It was an incredible show of, of you know, the power of people to, to say that they care about it. Issue. So I wanted to zoom in on the city, since your area specifically seems to be um, renewable energy and footprint outreach. And in the report, you talk about some of the bright spots, some not so bright, but some definite bright spots as to what different cities are doing. Um, could you address this, and particularly on the renewable energy and energy efficiency front? Absolutely. One, one example that I like to share, because I think it's a great microcosm of what needs to happen, is the story of Cleveland, Ohio. So Cleveland, Ohio, actually is most famous for its river catching on fire within the environmental movement and sparking some of the environmental movement. Well, today, Cleveland actually provides 100% renewable electricity credits for a huge chunk of its residents. They just had a year of zero waste, and they've turned it around. And that is the kind of story that we need to see replicated all over the world and all over the planet, and that will change this trend because that electricity is such a huge part of our carbon footprint, and carbon is really the dominant component. Um, where you guys are in Colorado, we've seen incredible leadership on solar. Um, solar. Rooftop solar is really taking off in Colorado, and that's critically important in terms of being able to have the energy transition that we need. And Boulder has been a leader both in preparing for climate change and in renewable energy. On the renewable energy side, you know, it's the first city in the nation to use a climate action tax to fund local renewable energy projects. Um, and as, as local folks will know, it's, it's really one of the first cities where citizens have really risen up and, and taken on the electrical utility and said, no, we want more renewable electricity. We You're referring to this to move to municipalize electricity here in Boulder, which is certainly exactly. um, in courts yeah. right now, but moving in, in that direction. Yeah. But do you think it's a given that that will actually lead to a lower carbon footprint. Absolutely. So we we know that the technologies that we need are wind and solar in order to reduce our carbon footprint. We know what the technologies are. What's relatively new is that those technologies are cheaper than the alternatives um, in, 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 a, in a large number and a growing number of cases. And so we, that's a different story from, from where we were even the last time we put out this report. Right. Um, so that gives me great hope. And, and so then all that's left is the politics. And I shouldn't say all that's left because that's huge to change the politics, but 
politics and government are the people. And so, so people engaging can turn around the politics. So how does, say, Denver rank? I think in the report it actually does give um, some ranking among cities for what that's worth. We actually we don't rank cities. We rank we rank countries. Um, you know, country by country, we give the the actual number of the carbon footprint. We have a program actually called the Earth Hour City Challenge, where we recognize communities for 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 what they're doing. Boulder is a participant. Denver's not, um, but Boulder was actually one of our three finalists. So is doing really a lot of the things that we need to see cities doing. Um, and again, it's cities that, cities are taking much more aggressive action right now than we're seeing at the state and national level. And, and you can see that reflected internationally because this last UN climate summit that Secretary General Ban Ki-moon held, it was the first time mayors participated and there were city leaders there and, we, and there were actual commitments. And Boulder is also part of the presidential task force on preparing for climate change. So we're seeing a lot of leadership in, in, in Boulder. And after all, Ban Ki-moon actually took part in the climate march, didn't he? He did. So Ban Ki-moon was out there, Leonardo DiCaprio, Sting. Uh, for me, that, it was amazing to see that, but I was even more touched to see the number of people who had never been in a march, had never participated in anything like that, and just normal, everyday people, you know, a lot of WF members out there in the streets with us to to show leaders that they're watching, they're paying attention, they expect more, and they demand more. And all of those people are never going to forget that experience, those 400,000 people, because it was it was it was it was a once in a lifetime kind of experience because there was this moment of silence or two minutes of silence where in the middle of Manhattan people raised their hands and it was dead silent for two minutes. And then there was this roar that kind of traveled up the street and from the march. It was like this tsunami that wow, overcame you. That is powerful. No you know what I'm sorry, I need people. to I need to cut you off, but that was that was really fabulous. So you're saying basically raise <laughs> raise the power of the people. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Kaya. Thank you so much for having me, Susan. That was Kaya Chatterjee, Director of Renewable Energy and Footprint Outreach at the World Wildlife Fund, talking about WWF's new Living Planet Report. This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. I'm Ted Burnham. At the top of the show, we mentioned research that suggests water ice may be a common ingredient in the formation of star systems throughout the universe. And as astronomers begin to detect exoplanets orbiting faraway stars, signs of life, or sorry, signs of water are among the first clues we have that there could be life out there. Roland Pease of the BBC's Science in Action will have more. To finish, we turn from the solid form of water, ice, to the gaseous form, water vapour and from the remote ends of the Earth to a remote planet 120 light-years from us in the Milky Way. Hat P11b, as it's engagingly called, was for a short while the smallest exoplanet seen directly, about the size of Neptune, or four times the radius of the Earth. It's lost that record, but now it's the smallest exoplanet known to have water. Astronomers have detected water vapour in its atmosphere using the Hubble Space Telescope. But having access to the best telescope doesn't make the task of peering into a distant planet's atmosphere that much easier, as astronomer Eliza Kempton told me. This planet in particular, when it, uh, when it passes in front of its host star, and that's how we detect it, blocks out only about one-third of one percent of the light from 
its star. And then the observation of the atmosphere is even more challenging to make because you can imagine that the planet just mostly blocks out some of the light from the star. The atmosphere of the planet is a thin ring surrounding the planet. And uh, and that thin ring is even more challenging to detect. It, it, it is like detecting um, a small bug passing in front of a huge lighthouse lamp. Um, in this case, the, the atmosphere of this planet blocks out about one part in 10,000 of the light from this star. So it's a very, very challenging measurement to make, and it, it requires some of the very best telescopes and instrumentation that we have access to. I can see why they've been using the Hubble Space Telescope in that case. So you you have in front of this very bright star a, a dark spot, which would be the, the middle of the planet, the dense part of the planet, and then around it something a bit more like a grey haze, which would be the atmosphere, and that's what they've been analysing, is it? Exactly. So the light's just filtering through that little ring of atmosphere around the edge. And somehow they've managed to analyze that light to show that there's water? Yes. So um, so it's a technique called transmission spectroscopy. It's taking advantage of the fact that different kinds of atoms and molecules uh, absorb light at specific characteristic wavelengths of light. So we know what wavelengths of light are absorbed by water vapor molecules. And what they see for this planet is that the light is absorbed at exactly that that set of wavelengths. So we know now that there is water vapor present in the atmosphere of this planet. Tell me a bit more about the planet itself then that they've been observing. Uh, so this planet is uh, approximately Neptune size. It's a little bit larger than Neptune. So that's about, uh, in this case, about four and a half times larger than the Earth in terms of the, the radius of this planet is about four and a half times larger than Earth's radius. Um, it's also about the mass of Neptune. So um, so this is a planet that's about half the size of Jupiter. It's not, it's not as large as the largest giant planets in our solar system, but it's also not quite as small as the Earth. It's, it's kind of right in the middle. It's the smallest planet that we've ever been able to do this kind of work for. It's the smallest planet where we've ever been able to detect the, um, the gaseous composition of the planet's atmosphere, where we've been able to actually detect molecules in the planet's atmosphere. And is that significant? Because I think they have observed water in the atmospheres of much larger planets before. Is it important that this is a much smaller one? Yes, yes, it is. So, so you're right that uh, that astronomers have detected water vapor in the atmospheres of larger planets, planets that are closer in size to Jupiter. Um, but you can imagine, eventually, we want to be able to detect molecules in the atmospheres of even smaller planets. We'd like to be able to look at, you know, an Earth-sized planet and measure the composition, the gaseous composition of that type of planet's atmosphere. Uh, so, this is kind of a this is a step on the ladder. We're, we're stepping down the ladder towards smaller and smaller planets. We've been able to do this for Jupiter-sized planets. Now we're finding that we're able to do it for at least uh, at least this one Neptune-sized planet. And eventually in the future, we'll be able to apply these same kinds of methods to smaller planets, Earth-sized planets. Professor Eliza Kempton of Grinnell College, Iowa. And there's more of her thoughts on the water in the journal Nature this week, which is where the discovery is also announced. That was... Roland Pease of the BBC's Science in Action. Thanks to them for that report. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker. 
This week's show was produced and engineered by Ted Burnham, with additional support from Beth Bennett and Jane Palmer. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music today from Lou Reed. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Ted Burnham. And I'm Susan Moran. This program is supported by you, the KGNU listener member, and by Independent Power Systems, a locally owned solar electric integrator located in North Boulder and serving the entire front range. Independent Power Systems offers electric system design and installation for your home, business, or commercial building project. Independent Power Systems is a SunPower Elite dealer and offers the SunPower Solar Lease. Details can be found at solarips.com or by calling 303-443-0115.